the opinions expressed on this show are solely those of Jeremy Hinks and Stinky Jazz Podcast and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else on this planet. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sticky Jazz. I'm Jeremy Hanks. The amount of a million musical opinions, all of which happen to be correct. Uh, this week, I, I've been getting some emails and requests from people to actually tell some stories about the gigs that I've been to. Uh, I've been told I'm a good storyteller, and uh, people just wanted to hear a couple. So I grabbed four stories that I had been writing. Uh, for my book called As It Is When It Was or Wasn't. It's a history of all the concerts I've been to. And uh, this, I picked just four at random that were in writing. I just read them and uh, you get to hear them. There was uh, the story of the go-betweens in A-House. There was the story of Bob Geldof. And the story of Iggy Pop live and also a story of one of the many Peter Hook and the Light shows I've been to. So this is Storytime with Jeremy. So everybody sit back and let's all do the Sticky Jazz. This event was the Go-Betweens and A-House. Supporting acts were Salt Lake City's local, Neil Lament, and Subject to Change. Date, March 22, 1989. The Speedway Cafe in Salt Lake City, Utah. A coming-of-age moment and a memory to dive for. In November 1988, a friend had died by suicide, and we were barely 15 when it happened. That event plunged me into a very, very dark place. I spent months trying to dig myself through the depression and understand my own feelings, and trying to make sense of it all, as my own family dynamic was unraveling. I had some wonderful friends and some great music to get me through it. It was a very dark time, and that music became my drug of choice. Come the first day of spring, I felt like I had emerged from a very dark phase of a continual conflict in my own thoughts. During that time prior, I had become acquainted with A House. I was excited about this concert. A House, a crazy speed punk pop Irish band. It only had one real hit called Call Me Blue, and everybody liked it. Two minutes and 20 seconds of fun all the way through it. The album was called On Our Big Fat Merry-Go-Round. I had a copy of the cassette, but only knew the title of two songs, Call Me Blue and I Want to Kill Something. But I knew all the songs, so this was going to rock. And this evening started at 6 p.m., and we all just hung out and tried to save our energy. I have to say, four bands like this was going to take a lot out of a guy. Laura, from the local modern music radio station, stood and talked at the mic for a few minutes for the sound check. I thought she would make an announcement of an upcoming gig, but no such luck. There was the band Neil Lament. Some guy came out looking like Kurt Cobain, wearing a Love and Rockets t-shirt, and said, Hi, we are Neil Lament. 
and they sounded a lot like a dreamy guitar Bauhaus Love and Rockets mix. It was no secret who these guys were into. Laura from KJQ and Dan, she danced and sang along with them, so we knew that she was into one of the guys in the band anyway. They played hard for about a half an hour, and some of my friends were collecting cash to get their tape. It was pretty cool, but I never heard much of them since. Maybe a spot on KJQ Sunday night spot, locals only. After that, I went and asked Laura about the upcoming gigs. She said, well, I can't confirm, but this summer cometh and summer bringeth. New Order, PIL, and Love and Rockets. I thought she meant all three of them were going to be on the same ticket. And I had an instant hard-on that didn't go down for months. I was with a few friends that night who had gotten me through a lot. And I was the only guy in the car. There was Jessica, the driver. She had more punk and hippie and culture than all of us combined. There was my friend Karen. Her brothers liked punk and folk and all, and she was in for all this. Though her favorite band was Oingo Boingo and etc. We had just gotten her into Pink Floyd earlier, though. Rachel, suburban Draper, Utah chick, had never been to a concert in her life. And she liked Edie Brickell. Now this was going to be great. Not that there's anything wrong with Edie Brickell if you were into that sort of thing. But back then, I believed your music defined you, and you were based as who you were. Based was you were based on your musical tastes. So as we talked about the upcoming show on the way down there, Rachel seemed excited, but didn't quite understand what I meant when I said stage diving or slam dancing. And I don't know if they'll be wearing spikes tonight. Subject to change. A little bit later, subject to change came out, and they played. And the Speedway security guys opened the garage door for fresh air. And we all just hung out outside, only sort of listening. I was saving my energy for the A-House segment. Subject to change was not at all really memorable. Not quite hardcore, just kind of punk sounding with a guy wearing a backwards baseball cap. They sounded good, but not much else to remember. A-House. Well, here goes. A-House. A white... Pox, scarred face, blue eyes, short, and uglier than a bat's ass lead singer. He walks out with a guitar and then, you know, bass, drums, etc. They announce, we are a house from Ireland. And they tore into it and we all went nuts. Moshing was an understatement and that wasn't actually much of a word then. And the crowd went mad and I got into it, half moshing, half pogo staking. The Sex Pistols fan still lived on in me. After the first three songs, we were all short of breath and loaded with adrenaline, endorphins pumping through the crowd with just as much testosterone. During this part, I saw Rachel standing on the side watching in awe with excitement and a smile and sheer terror at what she was seeing. A bunch of guys and a couple of girls all running around through a circle knocking each other over violently with almost a glee of d direct contact, getting knocked into somebody else, spun around or knocked over, picking the guy who just fell down back up and then jumping right back into the fray. It was euphoric and something I'd missed for a long time. I got jabbed up and was scraped some. It felt awesome to be back into it. Rachel stayed out of it completely but enjoyed watching that with almost as much energy as A-House cranking out the music for the rest of us. 
The singer of A-House began to yell at us all about how cool it was for him to play to us. He was amazed at our response to his music and said, I've never met an American then that can jump up and down right. And you're all fucking fantastic. Where did you all learn to dance? This is fucking great, he would say. That happened a lot between the songs, and we loved it, feeding off each other. A-House cranked through their 40 minutes, and we wanted more. And they wanted to give it to us. They played I Want to Kill Something, and I was thrilled with that one. Someone was taking pics of them all, and the leader got right in the cameraman's face, stuck out his tongue smiling for a shot. He loved us all as much as we loved him. Half out of breath, second to the last song, he said, Are you ready for this one? Yeah, we all shouted. Well, here it is then. Call me blue. Dancing and moshing, we all went totally mad. I don't think a single person there was standing still or unhappy. This was as live as it gets, and it never gets any better. A house finished. The singer said that they don't play encore, so I yelled at them that they just need to come back. They said that they would, but they never did. A house goes down as one of the most fun and enjoyable and high-energy gigs I've ever been to. Anyone else who was there would agree. They claimed we were the best audience they'd ever played to. I don't know if we really were, but we sure enjoyed every minute and the reciprocation and the appreciation of us. Then there was the Gobi Tweens. I had never heard of them until that night, but they lasted. And the night, that night is where I learned that someone can offer you their entire soul and you can still say it's not enough. They came out looking just boring and mellow and nothing like the previous three bands. They were on their 16 Lovers Lane tour, and I ended up getting the album the very next week. They were just fabulous. They'd been around for quite some time, and this was their humble offering to us that night. Opening with a song called Love Goes On, I was already blown away. It was folky, with two women in the band. One of them, her name was Lindy Morrison. She was playing everything, the clarinet, the violin, the guitar. They had a regular guitarist, bass, drums, and Grant on vocal and guitar. Grant, uh, as my friends with me that evening said, he has the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. I'd learned he had died in his sleep uh, in June of 2006, at a Bunnymen concert, of all things. Uh, they just hanging out in the sound booth. They told me he had passed in his sleep from a heart attack. So, they churned out this great set of wonderful songs. What, went, seemed, to go, what, what seemed to go on for hours. I was so impressed. The songs were like clouds in the streets of your town. Was there anything I could do? Uh, Grant, he played one Dylan-like song. It was just incredible emotion called Quiet Heart. And I still, how, I still remember how much it was about this longing for somebody that he missed. Who were these guys and why had I never heard of them? The go-betweens. On their own, I don't know that I'd say they were better than A-House. They just didn't belong there. Behind A-House. Two incredible bands, just two very different genres. Not that the go-betweens upstaged them. It was just a paradigm shift to go from slam-dancing punk pop to the Smiths gone folk. Uh, 
An hour into the set, Grant said, so we went into this bar last night after we got into town looking for a good beer, and someone in the crowd yelled, this is Utah. Laughing, Grant said, yeah, that's what the guy at the bar said. Anyway, we found it hard to find a good beer in a place like this, and we had to be satisfied with the local brew. And this is a song about something like that. This is called Bye Bye Pride. And that was their biggest hit to that to that date anyway. It was a great number involving some very complex riffs and time changes and some very fun lyrics. Even Delamitri did a cover of that song a few years later. After that one, some guy in the front standing next to me held up his t-shirt and Grant reached down to take it. The guy asked if he wanted it and Grant said he thought it was offering for him to wipe the sweat off his face. The guy gave it to him for that, and Grant thanked him over the microphone, saying that was most thoughtful of him. What a polite guy. It's a bummer that they're a band you guys have never heard of. They could have and should have been much bigger than they were and gone much further than they did. They ended their set with a song called Dive for Your Memory, a very sad, depressing song pulling in images from the book The Catcher in the Rye. The go-betweens pulled it off flawlessly, and I remember it all very well. My new almost favorite band, actually. One of the best gigs I ever saw, still to this day. They thanked us and walked off stage, and we pounded on the stage and yelled for more. After a few minutes of us pounding on the stage and the house lights were on, Grant came out and thanked us again and explained that after... Two hours and 16 minutes of playing, they would love to play more, they just didn't have any more songs to play. They were exhausted, and so were we in the crowd. Maybe we worked them so hard, and maybe that's what caused his premature death. <laughs> we wouldn't let them rest in peace. Grant, rest in peace. You made history for me. The drive home was wonderful, and that high lasted for weeks. Romantic love songs of Shakespearean quality which still have meaning, and they are a band for everyone to get into. I remember very clearly that night, on the ride home, laying sideways in the car, wearing my Bundeswehr German military tank top, my jeans and my trench coat was laying across my lap, and my combat boots were loosened. I felt a high, not realizing exactly, but that this was in fact a coming-of-age moment as I had finally climbed out of a very dark phase in life, a rough five months had come to an end. And things were getting warm, and I realized at that moment I was in a new phase of life. Everything was perfect, and I swear, in that moment, we were infinite. This event was Bob Geldof. The date September 22nd, 2002 at the Paradise Rock Club in Boston, Massachusetts. Bob Geldof is one of my favorite dudes in all of music. He's Irish, he's rude, he's awesome, and more talented than most people could ever imagine. I've said this of Geldof many times that he could walk onto the stage and say, Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. And leave... And that would have been just fine. I've listened to interviews and uh, read his autobiography, Is That It? And I knew his catalog from the Boontown Rats all the way through the rest of his solo career. So if life was to be complete, it would probably be after seeing Pink Floyd, Frewer, 
and the Boomtown Rats, seeing as none of those groups are around anymore. Uh, but being a big, huge Bob Geldof fan, once I saw that he was coming to Boston, I scored my ticket immediately. I was no way going to be missing someone as monumental as Bob. I named my car after him in high school and oftentimes went by the handle of The Geldof in chats. Yeah, I was going to love this. Geldof is an incredible speaker and performer. So I'd heard a lot of interviews, read his, bi his autobiography, Is That It?, and listened to everything he had ever recorded. For me, the sound was great. There was no way to pick one type or sound over the other. From his solo career versus the Rats, although I do say right now that my fave album on the whole of his solo work was Vegetarians of Love, the fave Boomtown Rats record was In the Long Grass. But Vegetarians of Love with Zydeco Accordion and God knows what else, Geldof will surprise you every step of the way, even by saving the world. So, I'd watched so many interviews with this guy because he is such an incredible speaker and he can captivate you with anything that he talks about. In one interview, he talked about how since Live Aid, the event changed the world, but people were always after him, calling him a hypocrite. He said, I would sit in a restaurant and... Right as I get a sandwich to my face, I'd have 20 cameras going off, and there it is in the news. Look, everybody, Bob Geldof, eating, as if that was a crime. After I heard that interview, I decided to stay out of his personal life and just wait until I hear it from him, somehow showing respect for his privacy. So, all the anticipation of this guy's live show, I was hanging out with my friends in the club sound booth, talked to the guys in the band. Pete Briquette from the Boomtown Rats was still there. And I had him sign some rat stuff. Again, he was rather impressed to see that much in one collection. I talked to the opening act. It was a guy named P.J. Olson. He had talked about his personal journey, getting to working in music, what inspired him to do this, and how he was performing. I bought his sampler CD. It was pretty good. Just a couple of songs, him, his guitar, and a sequencer. He's a very deep guy. I haven't heard a lot from him since, but uh, I do know that he was last seen playing with the Alan Parsons Project, so he has done pretty good for himself. So, here we are. Bob Geldof takes the stage, and I was rather thrilled beyond belief, as this guy is in my top five and is known for some of the things listed here. He was the lead singer of the band The Boomtown Rats with that single I Don't Like Mondays. Connected with many of his friends in the project called Band-Aid, writing and recording Do They Know It's Christmas for Famine Relief in Africa in 1984. He was also known for picking a fight with Margaret Thatcher in public and getting so pissed off that he organized a benefit concert to ensure the delivery of the food and called it Live Aid. Bullying, lying, and extorting, and blackmailing every musician on the planet to perform in Live Aid. He was also known for calling the dictatorial president of Ethiopia a cunt to his face. The role of Pink Floyd, or, or the role of Pink, in the Pink Floyd film The Wall. And a small cameo as himself in the Spice Girls movie Spice World. And many, many other things can be attached to Bob Geldof's name. The band takes the stage and they open with that song, The Great Song of Indifference. It was a song, uh, the chorus says, I don't care at all. Supposedly about the sarcasm he had felt after the Live Aid rec, uh, project and event 
had happened, and his solo album, Deep in the Heart of Nowhere, didn't sell anything. Um, it was a great record, and it is a crying shame that it didn't sell as much as the Joshua Tree. So the attitude was, I saved the world, now buy my record. That was a fun number, The Great Song of Indifference. It put us all into a great mood of the evening, and as strange as it was, the Paradise Theater had several rows of fold-out chairs for people to sit on. Come on, this is Bob, a classic punk dude. You don't sit down, even if they're just playing the fiddle and the accordion. He played a few more numbers to cheers and comments, and in between there were, uh, you know, from a true public speaker, Bob Geldof. He could keep you captivated by talking about tying his shoes. He played Chains of Pain and Gospel Song, and so far the performance was wonderful. He was talking about the new album. This one is called Sex, Age, and Death. And the critics said, well, at least you got that in the right order. And he started, we all started yelling about songs to play. And he said he would see what he could do, but was welcome to any suggestions. He talked about how the new album came out. And this is from a bootleg, so this is quote for quote here. So for any of you who read about me, and I actually hadn't, you all know that my personal life has really gone to shit for the last several years. He was probably talking about his, his ex-wife, Polly Yates, having passed in the scandal with Michael Hutchins from NXS, dying while in the middle of a child custody battle in a very bizarre love triangle. He joked about this kind of thing being uh, what makes you write an album like this. He played Walking Back to Happiness and kind of feeling it like we all could get back to a time to feel better, at least better than we do now. Then as the fans kept yelling stuff at him and he bantered with the fans, he tells the story of some guy I was at one gig who kept yelling, Hey Bob, Roy Kane, Roy Kane Bob. Now for those of you who don't know who Roy Kane is, uh, Roy Kane is an Irish footballer and a very good one. But Bob said, but what the fuck does that have to do with me? So after a while, I resulted to calling him a complete cunt. But that wouldn't stop him, and he eventually worked his way to the stage and tapped on my foot and whispered, Hey, Bob, Roy Kane, Roy Kane, Bob. And I said, yeah, man, Roy Kane. And then he shut up and walked off. Everyone was laughing at this point while he bantered with the fans, really making everybody feel as if it was an intimate moment. Uh... Bob also repeatedly apologized for his voice being off because he was getting over a terrible chest cold. That did not really show in his performance. A few songs later, he was telling a story behind some other song, and some guy yelled out, Hey, Bob, Roy Keane. Geldof doesn't miss a beat and yells, Yeah, hey, we all know what that guy is now, don't we? He played his token piece, I Don't Like Mondays. And you could tell he was bored of playing it for so long, but that's the one song everybody knows. It finished with him having a look on his face. I'm glad that one is done. Until the next time. That was a song about a girl named Brenda Spencer who, in the middle of a drug-fueled rage, took a twenty-two rifle out and started shooting children in a playground across from her house. Uh, she was arrested by the police, and she just said, I just don't like Mondays. I wanted to shoot the whole day down. Thus was Geldof's biggest piece and a terribly grim song, as we all know the subject matter now. He told the story of playing a show in Russia and the Russians not knowing the music of the Boomtown Rats. They were, uh, they really thought that the rats were the Rolling Stones. 
and the rats were honored to be mistaken for that. And so while they were in Russia, they heard this le- the legend about Lenin's brain was being kept in a jar somewhere in room 19. Thus they played room 19. Fans kept yelling for them to play songs. Uh, I asked him to play No Small Wonder and Voyager 2 from the Vegetarians album. And he said he wasn't ready to do them. Someone finally talked him into trying to play Joey's on the Street again. And the band wasn't ready, but he tried, and they kicked into it. And the band got the beat down and followed Pete Briquette's lead on the guitar. And they made it three quarters of the way through it. To Bob's own amazement, he remembered the words. Later, he told us to forget about hearing She's So Modern. He said that song was crap then, and it's crap now, so he wasn't ever going to play it. He told the story, then, of an attempted coup in Russia in August of of, uh, 1991 by the communist hardliners and how several students went out and laid down in the streets and were run over by the tanks. And then the commanders decided that after what happened, it was immoral and that they stood down, and communism's last stand went out with a whimper. At the young students' funerals, Boris Yeltsin said, Let the soil be your soft pillow. And Gedoff played the song of the same title from that, uh, the Happy Club album, and it was a tribute to these guys. And we all felt the same thing he did, kind of detached but trying to understand the event unable to really feel it, just knowing somewhere in our humanity that this hurts. He did that by telling a simple story, and the song cemented it for everyone, celebrating the lives of these young men, paying tribute and asking if they knew that their lives being cut short were also going to change the face of humanity forever. Some of the words from that song, and all the bells you've ever heard, are ringing out for what you've done. Like all the dreams in all the world, you're shining reckless like the sun. And in the moment of your madness, in the center of that storm, you understood it takes the same time for a man to die as to be born. Someday, someday, someday maybe, when it gets them down, we will understand your bodies have pulled them up as they went down. And all the hope that's in all the world is weighing down on top of you. So come on, show me what to do. I'll follow you down this road and try to learn from you. This may not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me. Your breath will still be breathing softly in a nighttime filled with stars, drifting like a dream in sleep, softly beating in your heart. This may not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me. Something in that moment, when Geldof sang that song, it changed my life. I began to love and respect those kids having heard the story. I've written so much about that event since. That song, Soft Soil, is the most powerful piece Bob Geldof has ever written. About the guys that he viewed changed the world. Now comes another great story, the best one of the night. Again, this is from a bootleg, so I can say it happened word for word. Bob said, now this is from, this is the second Boomtown Rats hit, and all the patties in the place started yelling out, Mary the Fourth Form! And then Bob tells the following story to explain why he wrote it. If you were 15 years in Dublin, 
and in the 1970s, and you went to school, the boys went in one door to the priests, and the girls went in the different door to the nuns. And, you know, never shall the twain meet. So there was no possible chance of ever getting shagged. Now, pause button, everybody. This was September 2002, right in the middle of the Boston pedophile pre-scandal. Very important fact, this was Boston. Back to the story. Everyone yells out to Bob, Hey, what about the priests, Bob? Yeah, what about the priests? And Geldof said, yeah, well, except for the priests, of course. I mean, they were shagging everyone, but they weren't really into commitment or anything. I mean, I feel so used. Anyway, there was this one girl named Mary, and I was so hung up on her, and I invited her to a dance on a Saturday evening. So we went. And as you all have seen, I can't dance. So I was there just flailing about trying to look cool, and as the night was going on, I realized this was not going well. So by the end of the night, I'm resorting to begging. Oh, come on, I won't put it in very deep. I'll just go in just a little bit and whining like that. And there she stood rooted to the spot. And then looking at me, she reached into her purse and pulled out 50 pence and gave it to me. And everybody laughed, uh, he said. And so I took the money and went home humiliated. So after all this time, I met her about two years back at a gig in Dublin, and, well, she is still a babe, and she's now the personal assistant for the Deputy Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. And I finally asked her about this, and why did she give me that 50 pence, and what did it mean? I mean, this has been something that scarred me for 20, almost 30 years, and she didn't even know what I was talking about. And there I am trying to sort out something, and she had no memory of it, so how was she to explain it? So, here we are all these years later, uh, no explained meaning to that song that I thought I would eventually get. Roars of laughter came out. So I guess that now the Deputy Prime Minister of Ireland is getting lots of 50 pence, and there were more roars of laughter from the crowd. And then Bob Geldof played Mary of the Fourth Form in dedication to the woman who scarred Bob Geldof in his adolescence. Bravo, Mary of the Fourth Form. They played that song, The End of the World, and then Rat Trap, uh, enough to dance mindlessly on a steep cliff, for that is that good of a song. The encore happened, they came out with a lot more bantering and more guys yelling Roy Keane and lots of connection between Bob Geldof and his fans. They closed with the closing piece of uh, The Great Song of Indifference and, of course, they had to, 10.15. I could go on about Geldof for years. I've loved every minute of this and I'd waited on seeing him since I first saw him in The Wall and seen him perform at Live Aid and so many other moments. This was a truly monumental and sentimental moment. Chalk this one off my list. I had seen Bob Geldof. Sir Bob Geldof. So many things to say about the guy, but all I can do is sum this one up. This is the end of the world. Or at least it was, just for an evening it felt that way. I could die a happy man now. Set list. Great Song of Indifference. Too Late. Chains of Pain. Gospel Song. Sex Thing. Walking Back to Happiness. 
Joey's on the street again. One for me, mudslide, birthday suit. I don't like Mondays. Yes, it was still great to hear. Room 19, inside your head, soft soil, marry the fourth form, end of the world, rat trap, pale white girls, diamond smiles, great song of indifference, exit, and 1015. Thus was a night with Bob Geldof. Okay, everybody, we're in the current millennium. This story is Peter Hook and the Light. Peter Hook is the bassist for the supergroup New Order, who I'm sure you all know. The date was September 28, 2013, Denver, Colorado, in the Gothic Theater. This was going to be a great one. I had not seen Peter Hook play since I flew down to Hollywood to see New Order in 1993. So this was 20 years in the waiting. I'd met him twice before, and both times was in New Order. The first time, he was just walking around before his set during the opening act. Uh, being the guy who will go anywhere, anywhere possible to see a live show, this shouldn't be any different. I flew to Denver, had lunch with a friend, and she took me to the theater and took me to the back street to drop me off. I got out, and there were a few people hanging out. One of which was a guy named Peter with long black hair and a massage therapist from Chicago. Her name is Kimber Crossan. Uh, they were both just hanging out, uh, talking about The Cure. This guy had been a roadie for The Cure and knew them pretty well. As we got talking, I showed him all the pieces of vinyl and whatnot that I brought for Hooky to sign. The guy freaked when he saw my book. I had a collection of press clippings for seven years. Everything that Joy Division and New Order had done into a press clippings collection. It's priceless, and I scored it ages ago for about six pounds in England. Peter Hook and the Light, live in Australia, the LP, it was still in the shrink wrap, and a Revenge, One True Passion CD cover. While I talked to this guy, I could hear Temptation playing in the sound check, and it was very tight. Something to look forward to. Outwalks is really short guy, and he introduces himself as Andy Poole. I shook his hand and asked him to sign the LP, so I had to pull it out of the plastic. He was happy to even see it, and he signed it, asking my name, and I told him, and he remembered me for the rest of the night. He saw the book and freaked, telling me Hookie would really love to see that. Then he told me David Potsy, Potts, was uh, here as well, and then he yelled for Potsy, telling him my name and that I needed an autograph. I'm at Potts. There he was, the singer for and guitarist for the band Monaco and in Revenge, some of Hookie's spin-offs projects. Potsy was so friendly and I was having a great time talking to these guys. Meanwhile, Kimber Cross and the massage therapist was going around getting people to sign a birthday card for Jack. Hookie's son's birthday was the day before. Potsy got on me for wearing my Manchester United t-shirt, as he is apparently a Manchester City fan. And at that point, and he had to point that out. Potsy was a bit bothered by that. I went around front and got my ticket and stood in line with the other fans, explaining that I had flown from Salt Lake City for the gig that evening. We had come in from everywhere. Chicago, Wyoming, Salt Lake, and I even met someone from New Mexico in line. This was going to be awesome. The doors opened and we went in and uh, 
The first dilemma arose. What t-shirt to buy? There were plenty of the Unknown Pleasures album cover, but nothing really that obscure. Those you can get online and everywhere. So I got the poster knowing that I would be getting it signed by them all. And the Movement cover t-shirt. Awesome. Had a tour dates on the back. It doesn't get better than that because this was the Movement and Power Corruption and Lies tour that they were doing. The poster has the tour map, dates, and the logo, looking very New Order-esque. It also said on there, supported by Slaves of Venus. As I remembered, one of the early names of Joy Division had thought of themselves, calling themselves the Slaves of Venus. So I assumed that it was just a Joy Division cover band. And Hokie's crew would play the New Order set. Uh, the first two albums, anyway, and up till the Power Corruption and Lies so as we hung out listening to the DJ and seeing all the Joy Division and New Order t-shirts around the venue, I enjoyed it all. I was just sitting there, really tired. Traveling does that to you, I guess. The lights dropped, and then Hookie and all the guys from the band walked up on stage and set up and plugged in, and Hookie said, Evening! We are the Slaves of Venus. And they proceeded to pound out a Joy Division set awesome i mean this was really cool i was not expecting this and hearing it all thumped out by a hooky after so many years of wanting to hear it was a very bodacious surprise i have to say it was almost erotic no not almost it was totally erotic i had been excited for this gig for months but was beyond anything i had expected what was even cooler than that was Hookie had refined his sound for these songs. When they first recorded them, he was just a kid playing punk, created some riffs, but then and there he was playing them with a solid New Order Peter Hook signature. They sounded no other way to describe it other than modern Hookie. His son Jack was playing the main lines and Hookie was playing his stuff on top of that. It was something new and it was just awesome. The set list, The Slaves of Venus was Day of Lords, Colony, No Love Lost, Passover, and New Dawn Fades. They finished up and walked off the stage for 10 minutes. Now I'll put this here. Hookie, in all of these 20 years of insane fandom, I've never noticed him to take himself seriously. He does not fancy himself as a rock star. He's just a guy in a band, and he's not at all hung up on himself, nor does he think he's anything special. In an article by the ba an article by the bassist of Primal Scream, he talked about messing up his car, uh, his guitar before the set. His pickups had broken, and it was on a Sunday, and there was no way he was going to be able to get a new guitar that late. And he was a total Peter Hook fan. He knew the history had been created on that bass, and he was scared and even ashamed to approach him over this. But he went and asked Peter Hook if he could borrow his bass for that gig. Hookie's response to him was so totally classic. Fuck off, Hart sank. Of course you fucking can. Here, let me get it out for you. <laughs> That's the kind of guy Peter Hook is. He's always been very cool to meet and just great to see live. I mean, how many of us all went to hear New Order shows just to hear him play? Yeah. That's what I thought, most of us. So they all walk out in the same formation, and Hookie says, Evening! So what did you th all think of that supporting act? I think they were pretty good.
and then they tore into it. Somewhere into it, uh, there was a six foot six mohawk wearing monster, and he was getting really rough. And the hook yelled at Big Fella, telling him he felt like he was at the show and not at him at Hookies. And he didn't mean that in a good way. He jammed out some great work and in a lonely place and ceremony. And, and then he stopped and told us about his son Jack's birthday uh, being the day before. And he asked, uh, he said, I asked him, son, what do you want for your birthday? And Jack told me he wanted to play the intro for Dreams Never End. So what's a dad supposed to say? Here it is, Jack. And Jack played the intro to Dreams Never End. And the movement set continued, the whole record. Without missing a beat, it was incredible. I was too young to have ever heard this stuff when it was current, so hearing it tonight live was just as amazing. Movement was an album that was the New Order Joy Division Identity Crisis. It was really dry and arty. Like early wire almost. It was a great album. Just something we didn't hear much over the years in concert. The performance was so great and they sounded better and tighter than the album did. More of Trademark Hookie thumping in this. It was just to die for. At the song Doubts Even Here, Hookie went off on the Mohawk Man once again, telling him, we didn't pay to get roughed up. And that either he calmed down or was to get the fuck out. After the movement set, they played Factus 8, the EP with Temptation, Hurt, Mesh, Procession, and Everything's Gone Green. Booyah! They did it all, minus Temptation. I knew that was coming, because, well, you couldn't skip Temptation. They did the Power and Lies, Power, Lies, power Corruption and Lies set, start to finish. And the set went on. It was just awesome for that night. Just under three hours they played. Right before the age of consent. Hookie pointed out that Paul, the drummer, was really tired. But he hoped that this song would wake him up. At the end of that segment, the beach was played. And that was okay. I mean, for the last intermission. The monster with the mohawk I saw in the front row. And five guys were all punching him in the face. And then he was tackled and fell over. Security rolled him out of there as the band was walking off stage. Intermission of the beach. And then they came out and Hookie asked, Oh, did they jag that fucking lunatic? Then they played Temptation. And then went on a really extended long with some dark type vocals to capture the essence of what they were trying to do with that song over 30 years ago. Blue Monday, and that kind of dragged, but it had to be done. I know Hookie is exhausted playing that one. Every gig since 1983. Then they finished the evening off with Lovell Tear Us Apart. We all expected that somewhere in the set. And it was religious. As they played songs, I never thought I would hear live. Songs that I was too young to hear them play live when they were current. It was just like when I saw the Bunny Men in D.C. playing the Crocodiles and Heaven Up Here albums. This was truly something I wanted since I had learned the music of New Order. The New Order set was In a Lonely Place, Ceremony, Procession, Dreams Never End, Truth, Senses, Chosen Time, ICB, The Hymn, Doubts Even Here, and Denial. 
Cries and whispers, everything's gone green, age of consent, we all stand, the village, 586, your silent face, ultraviolence, ecstasy, leave me alone, the beach, temptation, blue Monday, and then love will tear us apart. Post gig, I went and talked to the guys again. They all signed my poster and I talked to them about the set, talked to Jack, Hooky son. Potsy, Paul, the drummer, Andy Poole, the keyboards, they all came and chatted with me again. And they remembered my name. It was just cool. No other way to explain it. Potsy again came and said, look, man, do me a favor, mate. Don't wear that shirt next time. The Manchester City fan. Jeez, you can't please everyone, can you? I talked to him about some of the revenge stuff and how I really did like it. Even the Gunworld Porn War album. The one that no one seems to have. He didn't seem too impressed with that. He said he didn't like it. I told him the great songs on the revenge stuff. He agreed, okay, there were a few good songs. I don't know why he didn't like them. It was a fabulous project. And again, don't wear that Man you shirt. Jack Bates, hooky son, laughed at that and told me that uh, neither of the Manchester teams had won that day. I was getting stuff signed by Paul and Jack when Hooky came up the stairs and the manager... And Andy brought him over to me and introduced me by name. He told me to show him the stuff. Hookie saw the book and freaked out, saying, Hey, you got the other one. It's stapled together and very rare, and not even really a publisher's note on it. A real rare find that Hookie himself was honored to sign it. I asked him if he remembered that obnoxious kid in Salt Lake in 1989 with that banner that was taunting him. He smiled and said, Hey, wait, was that you? I said, Yeah, it was. And he said, Well, oh, you fucking grew up then. Totally Peter Hook style. We laughed and he signed my stuff and I asked for a pic. He put his arm around me and uh, the guy with the phone said, uh, There's not enough light from here. So Hook, he's still holding his arm around my shoulder, turned to me so he got enough light and snapped the pics. I thanked him for signing the stuff, and he said he was honored to do some of those rare pieces. I finally told him my All Things Peter Hook collection is well over 120 pieces, and he laughed and he said, Yeah, you're fucking obsessed, even to come from Salt Lake. That's great, man. And then I became the most uh, popular person there, as every other minute, Hooky or someone yelled, Hey, Jeremy, can I have your Sharpie? Foolish me, I only brought one of them, and the band was signing for everyone. I noticed that the drummer had the Unknown Pleasures album cover tattooed on his forearm. I got one last time to thank him for everything that night in the last 26 years of my life as his music helped me find some meaning to all that was insane in my world. He thanked me for being so loyal and he hugged me and I took off as my ride was waiting. What a show and what a way to experience something that was so important as a kid. It was just as incredible, I have to say. I've seen him perform. It's been intense and special. Peter Hook doesn't take himself seriously, and it's obvious he was out having a good time. He said some time ago he hadn't listened to much of the Joy Division albums over the years because it was just a rough chapter to go over and over, and he let the fans mull it in for him. But now he seems to have found healing in all of it. And to have gone on to listen and to love to do it all over again. 30 years was worth the wait. Anybody who has seen this will tell you that.
Okay, we're going to round out this episode, tie it up with uh, something from the early aughties. This is Iggy Pop on uh, November 9th, 2001 at the Avalon Ballroom in Boston, Massachusetts. The supporting act was Boston's local The Real Kids. So I was recovering from a recent trip to the Netherlands and I was looking online for the Friday evening for activities in Boston. I had been away for a very long time and hadn't actually seen what was going on at home. So I got home and waking up from jet lag, decided to get online and see what was going on. I did know that you two were playing the same night in Salt Lake City because my brother and friends back home were going, but I saw gigs tonight. There it was at the Avalon Ballroom, Iggy Pop. I was in the car two minutes later, calling the box office at the Avalon, asking if they had any tickets available. They assured me there would be a handful at least when I got there. I didn't have time to prep any of my bootleg recording gear. I just drove in, found a parking spot a few blocks away, and hoofed it to Lansdowne Street. This is Iggy Pop, the godfather of punk. I got my ticket and strolled in, and they told me I was just got in at the opening act. So as I got there into the main floor, there they were, Boston's own The Real Kids. They sounded like a version of the Ramones. I joked with somebody else there about it, saying they did sound better as the Ramones. The guy explained that these guys were old school and had been around since the Ramones. So please show some respect. Again, the Boston punk scene is very vibrant and has been around for a long time in the hardcore world. You've got, you know, Gang Green and all those other wonderful bands. Well, there was The Real Kids was in that list as well, just coming through. Playing that night, opening for the legend Iggy. Well, I was there mostly, yeah, mostly just waiting for Iggy. This was going to be historical, and I knew we were going to blow the house down. Uh, I met this short, gorgeous woman, and she had lived in Belgium, and she told me she had just seen Iggy about she had seen Iggy about twenty times, even in Brussels. And we spoke French for a while. She didn't look old enough to have been to that many gigs over the years. She was totally cute and sassy and a francophone, and she was standing over the steps as she could see. There was no hope for someone that short to have a good view that close to the stage. As many of us all just talked about old school punk and recent gigs, uh, we were anxious, as bad as the rest of the crowd. Not knowing what was coming, only that Iggy was known for breaking glass on stage and rolling around in it. He owns no shirts and is credited for having invented the stage dive. I have in the past seen video of Iggy crowd surfing, wearing his sprayed-on blue jeans and a spiked dog collar holding a bucket of peanut butter and throwing it all over the audience. Uh, so, you know, at an Iggy pop concert, anything goes. The band members come walking out and just start jamming and thrashing and being generally loud, playing into some very intense build-up waiting and they just sat there and cranked it out literally for a few minutes i remember the guitarist wearing this fur spotted cowboy hat 
uh, a leather vest and chains around his neck. Just really freaky looking, you know. And Iggy then comes onto the stage wearing his Chuck Taylors, his sprayed on pair of blue jeans. Skinny, not an ounce of fat on him. He came out and stands statuesque for a minute. And then makes that crazy goon face as he moves his arms slowly and deliberately up and down for a moment while the drums pound out to the one hard beat. Then the show begins. Iggy, of course with no shirt, starts flailing about, screaming and singing and putting on the greatest show. He starts trying to dance, but he can't really dance because one leg is shorter than the other. He just jumps around crazy flailing about, like I had always thought based on everything I had seen in the videos. He looks more incredible for a man in his 50s and moves like he is competing with Angelo Moore from Fishbone. Iggy Pop is the very essence and very proof of what the human body can endure and not expire. More heroin, cocaine, you name it, Iggy has done it and beat it and overdosed and almost died too many times to count. And you're just amazed to see what Iggy can do. He turns out the songs, blowing my mind with the intensity. He got out, he got to about howl and just dove right into the crowd. And he rode around for a few minutes. And this is Boston, the very Sioux happy city. And venues are obviously very, very scared about getting sued and the bouncers at this venue freaked they got into the crowd grabbed iggy pulled him out and got him back on stage as soon as he was back on stage and out of their reach he dove right back into the crowd what the bouncers didn't realize was that this was a warm-up of what was coming i was kind of shocked to see that actually Based on the state laws and how the performers can't be on the floor with the rest of the punters away from the fans, uh, for safety reasons, I was surprised to see that. There was too much liability in the state of Massachusetts. Then a little later into the song, a guy gets on the stage and dives into the crowd, and the bouncers were chasing him. A total waste of energy. Iggy plows through the set and does, Now I wanna be a dog! Screaming insults and everyone, and he did one verse. And if I, I'm pretty sure he was singing "Inagata de Vida" by Iron Butterfly in that one. This whole show turned into an hour and a half comedy routine with some great Iggy Pop music behind it all. During the song "Sterility," Iggy yells, "Hey, shithead! Turn on the house lights!" And so they did. And then Iggy says. Get the fuck up here, everyone! To a lot of confusion from the bouncers, Iggy Pops Rodies came onto the stage and started motioning for everyone to get on stage. And they started grabbing everyone they could. Within a minute, there were about 60 punters on stage. Iggy was still singing, and six guys were holding him up on their shoulders. I thought to myself, okay, the bouncers are losing their minds on this one. How are they going to have those guys off of that stage? Well, Iggy had a plan. Iggy said, Let's all stage dive! And suddenly, there was a huge wave of punters diving back into the crowd. 
On to the people who had moved up and taken their places. Iggy somehow rode out there with all of them as this wave of people rolled out onto the ballroom floor. It was insane and awesome. And somehow, no one got hurt. And India Iggy ended up back on stage screaming away, making this one hell of a night. Though compared to most gigs I've read about, this was about as tame as it gets. I told the short girl I knew the guy at the stage door was closest to us. I had worked gigs there before with other bands, and she ought to go up there and sing Candy with him. She said she was too shy to even think of doing that. He played the rest of the set, swearing and trying to dance and performing like no one else I had ever seen. He finished up with a song, No Fun, a song that actually years later marked a very painful experience in my life as I was listening to it in a hospital waiting room, knowing I was probably going to get some very bad news about somebody that I loved very much. But that show is incredible and stands out as a monumental gig. Seeing the godfather of punk, he made sure you got every penny out of that ticket price. He was probably in one of his vegan drug-free binges because he looked very happy and very healthy. Long live Iggy Pop. I fear Iggy will not die of drugs, but of a heart attack playing catch with his grandson at age 94, or falling off a ladder taking down Christmas tree lights. This is what rock and roll is all about. A guy who is best friends with David Bowie and Lou Reed, and you get nothing but raw, raw power every minute from James Newell Osterberg, a.k.a. Iggy Pop, Detroit's finest. Here's the set list. Mask, Espanol, Beat 'em Up, Drink New Blood, Search and Destroy, Howl, Corruption, Real Wild Child. I Want to Be Your Dog, Death is Certain, Sterility, Home, The Passenger, I Got It Right, Cold Metal, Death Trip, TVI, Lost and no fun. Long live Iggy. And thank you for tuning in, everybody. We hope you enjoyed Storytime with Jeremy. Special thanks to Barry Anders of Shriekback for letting us use the theme and title of Sticky Jazz. And thank you, everybody else, for listening in. And uh, let us know via email. Tell us what you think of the presentation today. Everybody have a gnarly week. And why and don't why we don't we just round this out so that we Peter Hook and Peter Hook and the Light version version Just the
Thank you so fucking much. Thank you. Good night, God bless.